podcast in the galaxy. Hey, hello everyone. Welcome back to the Elise Yeezy Show. I'm your host, Elise Yeezy. And today I'm joined by Brian Toon, a professor of atmospheric and oceanic studies, sciences, at the University of Colorado, Boulder. Hi, Brian. Hi, Elise. Thank you so much for coming on. The topic today, now I don't want to worry anyone, I don't want anyone to feel ill at ease, but it's a worrying topic. We're going to be discussing nukes, nuclear winter, nuclear Armageddon. You've been researching into this for the past few decades, haven't you? Uh, yeah, it first uh, became interesting to me in the 1980s, um, probably partly because when I was young, we had to do things like crawl under your desk in case there's a nuclear explosion at school. <laughs> and, you know, my mother said, oh, you got to stop drinking milk because a nuclear weapons test or poisoning the earth with strontium-90 and things like that. And, you know, children's teeth actually were picking up radioactive materials from the nuclear weapons test before 1963. And when they really? were banned in the atmosphere, yes, that was a significant problem. Um, but anyway, so, you know, I knew about it from being a child. And, of course, you watch TV or something back then, there were all these things on, like, Godzilla you know, Godzilla's a Japanese nuclear mutant monster. You know, I read their memory from Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombing and all the people there that were had radiation poisoning. Um, but, you know, in 1980 or so, I, there was a discovery by a group of scientists um, at uh, Berkeley that an asteroid had killed the dinosaurs 66 million years ago. And we tried to figure out, well, how did that happen? What it what what occurred to kill them. And um, that once we figured out what that was, we then said, oh, same thing had happened to us if there were a nuclear war. Uh, so there was that really propelled me into studying this. Uh, and uh, like many other subjects I've worked on, it, it's, it's hard to ever answer it. You know, you have to you keep working on the same problem over and over again, trying to understand it better. So there's only a few things where you can get a nice definitive yes-no answer in science. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned Godzilla, actually, because I remember a point someone made once that isn't it funny how in a lot of Western American Hollywood-esque media, radioactive materials can give people superpowers and it's kind of a positive thing, you know, in cartoons and such, whereas in Japan radioactive materials cause things like Godzilla. Well, why do you think that is? Well, Hiroshima, Nagasaki. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's interesting how, how it's represented in different forms of media across the world, I guess. Um, I suppose my first question, again, not to worry anyone, but in the news mm -hmm. only a few days ago, there was the drone strike. Um, Russia have said that it was... they. Someone was trying to assassinate Vladimir Putin. I think that they've blamed mm -hmm. on the Americans, but not brought any evidence to the forefront. Um, are we closer to nuclear war now than during the height of the Cuban Missile Crisis? Like, how likely is it? Well, the Cuban Missile Crisis was extremely serious uh, for several reasons which we can get into, if you want yeah. to. But... Um, I think right now we're probably at, at the second closest point we've been, uh, not because I think Putin would actually use a nuclear weapon, 
but more because this is a kind of situation people hypothesize can easily lead to a misunderstanding mm. and a mistake. And so the danger there is that in both the United States and Russia, there are all these missiles that are sitting in silos with nuclear warheads on them waiting to be launched with short warning. Uh, and the reason they're short warning is that it only takes 20 to 30 minutes for a missile to get from the U.S. to Russia or vice versa. And so <clears throat> we have... 400 missiles sitting just north of me, um, ready to be launched. And if the president detected a launch from Russia, he or she would only have 20 or 30 minutes to decide whether they should respond, because otherwise a missile sitting in the ground would be destroyed. Uh, and so, you know, every lots of certain political figures in the United States call the current president Sleepy Joe. Um, you know, so you can imagine it's the middle of the night here or middle of the day in Russia and uh, Jill Biden has to run down the corridor and wake up, Joe. So, wake up, <clears throat> Joe, you have 30 minutes to decide whether to end uh, Western civilization and kill most of the people that live in the northern hemisphere. You know, that's not a safe situation. Mm. And there have been a number of cases where people thought they had detected missile launches. Uh, both in Russia and in the United States. And so we're pretty lucky that in those cases, no one actually responded, uh, although it went up pretty to pretty high levels, certainly on the Russian government, to um, because they had thought a launch had occurred and they needed to launch their missiles, but they didn't, fortunately. Yeah, there was that incident in, I don't know if it was the 80s or so, where a Russian, I guess, commander got the message that something had been launched but they thought it's just an error and luckily it was just an error yes was so he there was a new detection system put into place and um he was in charge of working on that and it seemed that they had detected six missile launches and um you know he thought this is very peculiar that there would be only six there's at the time thousands of missiles out there and so he didn't report it higher up. And um, it turned out it was just um, reflections of light off of clouds that was being mm. detected. And so this is a danger of um, somebody putting a new system in place to try to detect things. It's likely to fail. And, you know, you don't know what to do when it fails because it's brand new. And this is a real danger at the moment because of artificial intelligence. Um, so... As I mentioned, somebody like uh, Putin or Biden only has 20 or 30 minutes to decide if there's an actual launch going on. But um, particularly the Russians are trying to develop systems that have even less warning time, mainly because they don't like missile defense systems. So, for example, in Ukraine, Russia has started using hypersonic missiles to attack Ukraine because they travel so rapidly you don't have time to defend yourself against them. And they're also trying to develop and have developed hypersonic long-range missiles. Uh, and they've also developed um, a thing called a torpedo, which they threatened to blow up off the coast of Britain, for example, um, which is a pretty big drone submarine mm -hmm. um, that could have a very large nuclear weapon on it. And, you know, you could drive one of those up to the harbor of any city you wanted 
and um, blow it up and destroy the city. So you can imagine Russia floating these things up to every harbor in the United States and saying, oh, well, we just put these submarines off your coast and we're going to blow them up if you don't do what we want. Mm. Uh, and they did threaten Britain with that. They said, we're going to blow up one of these uh, off the uh, coast of Britain and dump radioactivity all over Britain um, if you don't stop funding Ukraine. How did Britain respond to that? Because I'm unaware of that happening. They ignored it. <laughs> um, and, you know, and this is this is the problem with these short warning times is that they're becoming so short that a human being doesn't have time to respond to it. And so you can imagine that uh, some nuclear weapons person were very well funded and they have like a trillion dollars to upgrade the nuclear weapons in the United States, for example, which, of course, instead of being upgrading, they're building new ones. Um, but you can imagine them saying, oh, well, we don't have much time left. Now let's have a machine decide whether we're under attack. If we are, it'll launch the weapons for us. You know, I don't know about you, but, you know, I, I run an Apple computer here. Uh, thing constantly breaks down. Millions of people have tested it for every conceivable error. It still breaks down almost on a daily basis. So, you know, do I want to trust artificial intelligence to launch missiles and kill most of the people on the planet? I don't think so. Yes, and that's running under the assumption that artificial intelligence is always going to be on the human side, regardless of what country the human resides in. Um, what if the artificial intelligence one day decides, uh, get rid of all of them then? They're not worth right. it. Yeah. Exactly. That's a that's another problem. That's a little bit more hypothetical that they're ever going to actually decide something emotional, like I don't like people, but not giving <laughs> enough electrons or something. But, what about in uh, the film War Games where did, didn't the machine decide it was just logical to kill off the humans? Yeah, well, that's certainly possible. <laughs> you know, we're taking up a lot of space that um, they might want. Um, but on the other hand, you know, right now we have to help them uh, mm. by well, providing power or something. And Yeah. Human beings are not going to last for much longer, no matter what. Um, you know, we're we're the lifetime of mammals in the geologic record is pretty short. It's a few million years before a species become extinct. Um, and you know, humans are probably not going to become extinct. But what I think they're going to do is to um, diverge into a, a bunch of different species. You know, so if people start living on the moon or Mars. You know, they, you can't grow up on Mars and come back to the Earth mm. because the gravity is too great on the Earth. You know, you wouldn't be able to strong enough to do it. Um, you can go from the Earth to Mars because it has less gravity. But, you know, that's going to create a whole group of people out there on Mars who are responding to a different environment. And they'll evolve into some different creature. That's how evolution happens when species become isolated. Um, you know, so you probably I remember Star Wars bar scenes, you know, where there are all these weird looking creatures all sitting around drinking the same kind of drink and living, breathing the same air. You know, and in my mind, that's not aliens from different star systems. That's different humans that have evolved on different planets to different subspecies. And there used to be subspecies of humans on the planet. There used to be Neanderthals and Denisovians and so I think it's more likely that our species will um, simply evolve into multiple species instead of having robots take over. But who knows? Well, what about um, 
the elite group of people who want to merge their consciousness with machines, with AI, with some form of matrix six to theoretically live forever um, as a consciousness on a server somewhere. Do you think that's, do you think that's a viable possibility? Yeah, well, it's hard to know. Is that still you if it's just a machine that's mm. using your thoughts? And, um, um, you know, there's all kinds of interesting ethical and philosophical questions there. So when it comes to nuclear weapons, how likely is it that someone like Putin is bluffing? Because... One of my friends is a bit more politically aware than I am, and he said this is kind of Putin's go-to and has been for the past decade or so, um, threaten nuclear use to get your way. You know, oh, stop supporting Ukraine, otherwise nuclear weapons are on the table. Stop doing it. Apparently, he, didn't he do it with Crimea? Sorry, I'm coming across as so ignorant right now. Um, when Russia took back one of the smaller countries they they were doing the same again so how likely is it that putin is just bluffing how likely is it that he actually would engage in nuclear warfare i think this is a new thing on putin's part i mean it's a it's a form of nuclear blackmail is what it is mm. and um or blue, nuclear extortion whichever way you want to look at it um but I, you know i think he doesn't he didn't anticipate it to be so hard to overrun the Ukraine. And, um, you know, so he's trying to figure out how he's going to get out of this without getting killed um, himself by people in Russia who are not happy with uh, having hundreds of thousands of Russians get killed for something they didn't actually need to do. Um, and so he is in a tight spot there. But on the other hand, Putin's not stupid. He's He certainly knows that you know, if he initiated a nuclear war that nothing left in Russia, you know, we predict that if there were a war between the United States and Russia, that about 2% of the Russians would survive into the second year. And a similar fraction of Americans and Europeans and uh, Canadians and people at high latitudes. Um, and the reason for that is these nuclear weapons burn cities um, or whatever they hit. And uh, the smoke from those burning cities will get into the upper atmosphere, spread over the earth, and block sunlight from reaching the ground, which causes what we call a nuclear winter. It gets cold at the surface because the sunlight has gone away. And um, that causes it to be impossible to grow any crops. Um, you know, we, the calculations we've done show that if you had a nuclear war between NATO and the U.S. and Russia, that... <clears throat> If you went to a place like the Ukraine, which is a breadbasket of Europe, or if you went to Iowa in the United States, that the temperatures in those two states or places would remain below freezing every day for several years. You're not going to grow anything to eat in that situation. Uh, and, you know, lots of people have heard of the stories in the Bible, which were also the same story in the Quran about um, Joseph and the Pharaoh of Egypt. And so, you know, the Egyptian pharaoh is having dreams about cows and he doesn't know what that means. And so for some reason, he learns about Joseph, who's in jail and um, who's interpreting prisoners' dreams. And so anyway, the pharaoh asked Joseph, well, what's this dream about cows mean? And um, Joseph says, oh, it means there's going to be seven. He was dreaming about seven cows, seven good years 
um, in which you can store up grain, and then there'll be seven bad years, and then you can feed the Egyptians with the grain from the seven bad years. Um, and uh, anyway, so Pharaoh does that, and he becomes a, appreciated by his um, citizens. So, of course, he had to do that for 14 years, <laughs> which is not the normal lifetime of an American president or a British prime minister. Um, but nevertheless, that story isn't true um, in the modern world. We don't have years of food and storage. We have 60 days. So uh, modern society lives on 60 days of food and storage. And if you live in a city, there's like seven days of food in a typical city. So if something happens in a typical city, uh, in a very short time, you're going to run out of food. This happened in where I live in Boulder, Colorado. We had a big snowstorm five or six years ago, just before Christmas, three feet of snow in the ground, couldn't bring any food in in trucks. And uh, so all the food was gone within a few days in the grocery stores. And all the gasoline was gone as well because um, there wasn't any resupply of that. Um, so right now, the world lives by transportation. So if there's uh, bad weather in Russia, which has happened several times, and they lose their wheat harvest, well, the people in North Africa, you know, are living off uh, wheat from Russia. Uh, they start starving. And so people have to ship wheat into North Africa or into Russia. It's happened in the Carter administration. We shipped 30% of our wheat production from the United States to Russia because they had bad weather back there in the Soviet Union. Um, so if there were a nuclear war in, you know, in 60 days, we'd all run out of food uh, and people would start starving. And so we calculated in a recent paper in Nature of Food, which is a British journal, um, how many people would starve to death by the second year in each country in the world. Uh, and in Russia, it's like 98% of the people in the United States is like 97. And um, so if you're already in a cold country, and it's freezing, <laughs> it's even harder to grow food. And even a war between India and Pakistan with very few weapons would actually cause mass starvation in, um, in, in Northern Europe and Russia and the United States. And we predict an India-Pakistan war would kill between one and three billion people by starvation. And a U.S.-Russia-NATO war would kill probably six billion people for the same reason. Um, so maybe 300 million people would die from the bomb blasts. You know, if you're in London, for example, there's only going to be a bomb aimed at, you know, the Heathrow and Gatwick airports uh, to keep military aircraft from moving there. There'd be bombs on the submarine bases in um, Scotland, and uh, there'd be bombs on all the military installations in um, Britain, which are scattered all over the place. Um I don't know if they bomb the Tower of London. <laughs> Some of the more ceremonial kinds of places. Uh, but nevertheless, um, hundreds of millions of people would die just from the bomb and blast. Mm. So pe people don't understand the numerics of this. So there's only 500 cities in Russia and the United States, a total number of 500 between the two countries, with more than 100,000 people, 500 cities. Mm -hmm. But the two countries have 4,000 nuclear warheads aimed at each other. So that, that works out to eight nuclear weapons exploding on every city with 100,000 people in it. You know, and of course, Lenin probably might take eight weapons to destroy. 
Um, but, you know, Boulder, Colorado, one weapon would be plenty. Um, but I can count the targets in Boulder, Colorado, and there's many of them. There's the National Institute uh, for um, Technology, which makes uh, GPS satellites that keep time for everybody. Um, and then there's uh, NOAA here that does weather prediction. And there's the University of Colorado that launches satellites. And you have all three of those. There's Ball Brothers that build satellites. And then there's another one or two. So there's like four nuclear weapons aimed at the moment within a few miles of me. This is not a hypothetical thing. These weapons exist and they're aimed at places. You know, they can change where they aim depending on what Putin or Biden decided to do within the 20 minutes they had to think about how they wanted to fight a war. Uh, but, you know, I'm not quite sure where you live, but there's probably a nuclear weapon aimed at you right this minute or close to you. Well, I feel very special. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, so take London, for example, a big city like London. What would the effect of a nuclear explosion be? in such a city you know what say they aimed it right at central right where big ben is they've only just finished construction on big ben but say you know someone wants to nuke it what uh so what's the radius of the explosion um who immediately dies in what mile radius and then how for lack of a better term screwed are the rest of the people like in greater london sure so this depends on the yield of the weapon and um, things like that. And uh, you can actually do this on the web. There's a, a um, game called Nuke Map. Um, that's the name of it. If you look up Nuke Map, you can mm -hmm. play this game and you can pick any city in the world and any size weapon you want and you can blow it up in the city and it'll tell you how many people would get killed by that. Um, you know, so the last time I did this, I was gave a talk to part of the British government about this uh, six months or so ago and my, my memory was something like one small weapon of about 100 kilotons, which is about half the average weapon size these days. Um, but it's um, about six times the weapon that blew up on Hiroshima uh, would kill around 500,000 people uh, in London. Uh, and if it was detonated in Hong Kong or um, someplace where the population density were higher, you could kill a million people with one weapon. So we know from Hiroshima and Nagasaki that it only takes one bomb to destroy the central part of a city. And, you know, mm -hmm. Hiroshima, 100,000 people died. Similar number died in Nagasaki in the Second World War. And those are much smaller weapons. Now those, like, those kinds of weapons now are artillery shells. So there are nuclear artillery shells um, that um, have the yields of the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombs. One artillery shell killed, destroyed an entire city. Um, and, the, you know, the larger weapons, you know, for example, a, a typical, the typical size of weapons about 200 kilotons now, 10 times bigger than a Hiroshima bomb. And, you know, it will destroy an area that um, is around 150 square kilometers. Um, that's a pretty good sized chunk of a city, you know, like mm. 10 by 15 kilometer area. Um, so, yeah, you could take out central London with a bomb like that and, Russia almost certainly has quite a few of them aimed at you. Uh, so, you know, the United States and Russia are going to be attacked by intercontinental ballistic missiles and submarine missiles and things like that. Um, but Putin also has an additional 2,000 tactical weapons, um, which means a tactical weapon 
is no different than a strategic weapon, except for the delivery system. You know, they're instead of being carried on intercontinental ballistic missiles or submarine ballistic missiles, you know, they're more likely to be carried by airplanes or short range missiles. But they can have a yield just as large as a strategic weapon. And Putin has 2,000 of them. You know, some of them are uh, designed to do things like uh, destroy ships or something like that. But, you know, the others are going to be used against uh, cities in Europe, including in uh, Britain. Uh, and um, I, I've made a count of how many military installations there are in uh, NATO countries there in Europe. And there are about 650. Um, I forgot how many there are in Britain, but quite a few. And, you know, they would almost certainly all be attacked by Russian uh, nuclear weapons. Is there so, any type of defense against nuclear weapons? Any? Uh, well, uh, during the Reagan administration, there was um, the idea that they would build um, an anti-ballistic missile defense. Uh, and so the idea is you detect the launch and... Um, they tried different techniques, but now what they do is they try to hit the incoming missile, mm. and, you know, physically hit it. <laughs> you know, so you can imagine, you know, some guys sitting there in the missile control facility, he hadn't done anything in ten years except sit there. He's probably overweight, eating too much pizza, and I can't because you can't leave in the middle of the day. It was a big controversy, and and one of these missile silos up here just to the north of me, there were two guys there, and because it took two of them to launch the weapon. And one guy said, oh, I'm going to go get a pizza. I'm tired of this. And so we gave the other guy a little stick that he could push the other button with when he pushed his and went and got a pizza, which is considered poor form. Mm -hmm. Anyway, you can imagine this guy is pretty bored, sitting there doing nothing. And all of a sudden, he notices all these missiles have been launched. So now he pushes a button, and the anti-ballistic missile is supposed to catch the other missile in flight uh, and hit it physically. Can you imagine how difficult that is? Yeah. As far as I'm aware, uh, the United States has almost no success in doing this. And, you know, the Russians have decoys. You know, they're not going to just have one warhead come out. They have all kinds of decoys there. You don't even know which one is, a, is the um, real thing. Of course, they have had some success in short-range um, blowing up cruise missiles and um, drones in Ukraine. Um, and uh, in the Middle East also, there have been some claims of stopping short-range missiles from hitting Israel. Mm -hmm. um, so it can be done, but it certainly isn't easy to do that. And uh, people don't really think that there is much credibility to it, besides which it's um, uh, when the United States started deploying the sites, there was an agreement reached with Russia to limit the places where these missiles exist. And um, so there's there's only a few of them deployed, I think, around Moscow and some other place in the United States, probably Washington, D.C. I'm, I'm not sure that's where they are. Um, so, no, you're not going to stop those missiles once they're launched. So if, say, you're on the outskirts of the nuclear explosion and you survive, I guess, the shockwaves and the blast, what dangers do you then face? Well, that's... Um... Or some people that are even within the zone close to the explosion will likely escape. You know, the biggest danger is fires. There's fires set over a huge region by these explosions. You know, but it takes a little while for the fires to really develop. 
And so, you know, you have some time to run out of the fire zone if you haven't been hurt already by the blast waves or some building falling on you or something. Um, but, you know, if you're in the outskirts, um, there'll be a shock wave that's not, you know, near, near where the explosion occurs, shock waves will knock down concrete buildings and blick buildings further out. Um, and then far out, they'll blow your windows out. So this is the famous thing that happened in Hiroshima, but also it happened um, a few years ago in Russia. There was a meteorite that um, came into the atmosphere over Shilivinsk, which is a city I'd never heard of, but has a population of a million people in it. Uh, and anyway, people saw this trail, luminous trail in the atmosphere, said, oh, what's that? And they all rushed over to the window to see what it was. And a shockwave hit the window and blew glass into their face. So that would happen to a lot of people on the outskirts of this. They would see the explosion and uh, hear the explosion, and they'd rush over to see what it is, and you know, glass would explode on them and blind a lot of people. Mm. Uh, then there would be uh, the question of radiation. So there's two kinds of um, explosions that occur. The first one is usually used if you want to do the most damage to a city, which is to blow the bomb up high above the city, and then it reaches out further with its shock waves. Uh, and that isn't too dangerous for radiation because the radiation from the bomb is in the upper atmosphere above you, you know, so it just blow away in the wind. Uh, then there's a ground burst. So if there's some buried target, you know, like if somebody is storing nuclear weapons underneath the 10 Downing Street or something like that, <laughs> who do such a thing. And they decided they had to make an explosion at the ground to make a big crater and dig out some buried thing. Mm. You know, then what happens is there's all this dust that from the ground that, that is blown to the air, and the radiation will attach itself to the dust, and the dust will quickly fall on the ground. You know, and that's very dangerous. Um, because then you're exposed to a, a lot of very radioactive material. And so usually from a ground burst, there's a downwind plume of radiation, you know, so it blows down wind. And, uh, you know, it can go, it can blow hundreds of miles and still kill people. And so there's some downwind region, depends how big the bomb is, in which there'll be dangerous radiation on the ground. Now, if it were an airburst and it was raining at the time, you know, the rain might deposit that radiation on the ground and that might do the same thing. And there have been cases where there, there was a case where there was a nuclear weapons test in the United States in Nevada, and it got caught in the jet stream, which people didn't really know about at that time very well, and carried over upstate New York and rained out on the ground. Uh, and so there's a radioactive hotspot in upstate New York still remaining from that. Uh, which the military, of course, immediately didn't, denied that there had been any such thing that had happened, and no, it didn't happen, and no, there's not really any radiation, and you shouldn't worry about it. Mm -hmm. uh, but it did happen, uh, and um, there were people at the ground who measured the radiation. Uh, so that that is hazardous to radiation, but it's it's not. So the radioactivity actually decays very rapidly, um, and so all you have to do is stay inside for a few days and don't let any air from the outside come in and the radiation will have decayed by a factor of 100 or something like that so it's decaying very rapidly um, so if you just don't go outside 
and get yourself exposed to the stuff outside, you probably wouldn't have too much radiation poisoning. And even in this ground burst situation, if you stay inside, you can protect yourself from the radiation. So Which, the real danger. Go ahead. Yeah, that that's surprising um, for me because I only learned that a few days ago because uh, by popular media standards, it would seem that ra radiation poisoning is much more dangerous than the reality of it. I watched a American film called Testament. Have you heard about it? It's about a small town. It's about a small town in California. Nukes have gone off across America. They lose contact. There's no damage from shockwaves or anything in this town, but they all slowly, over the course of a few months, die from radiation poisoning. You mm -hmm. know? Uh, so, so would that be the case, or was that quite dramatized? Okay, well, this is a complicated <laughs> issue. And so there was a movie called On the Beach at one point. And this is the most famous movie about this, I think. And in on the beach, there's a nuclear submarine that surfaces, I think, in San Francisco Bay. And the city is perfectly intact. Nothing happened to it, but everybody's dead. And so this submarine of men is the only people surviving on the planet. Um, and the idea there was that radiation would be global and kill everybody on the planet. And, you know, that that's never been a realistic possibility. There's... You know, the radiation would decay very rapidly before it ever spread globally. There were 500 above-ground nuclear weapons tests before 1963, and they were creating long-lived radioisotopes. I mentioned this before, children getting strontium-90 in their bones and teeth. Mm. You know, and so they, some of the long-lived isotopes did get global. But that was 500 nuclear weapons, um, and they, a lot of them were high-yield nuclear weapons. So this global nuclear radiation from the currently existing arsenals would be about the same as what was released in these 500 nuclear weapons tests, which didn't kill anybody that we know about <laughs> on the planet. Might have actually killed a few people. Um, it's you know, hard to statistically detect that because people are dying all the time. I mean, mm. there's in my basement here, I'm pumping the air out all the time because of radon. And, you know, and so there's, I don't know if radon's a problem in Britain, probably is. Um, so there, there's natural radiation around all the time. And, you know, mm. so um, actually people have radiation hazards that are like airplane pilots and stewardesses and fly a lot because there's a lot of radiation at high altitude that can be exposed to. Um, so at any rate, global radiation poisoning is not going to happen. However, the case you mentioned, um, uh, probably I wouldn't have thought of it as a California city, but there are downwind cities from the missile silos here in the middle of the United States, um, in um, Colorado and Wyoming and Nebraska and uh, Montana. And, you know, those would be attacked. There's like 400 missile, 450 missile silos there, and they would be attacked by ground bursts. I've just been attacked by a dog. <laughs> okay. So, puppy here. Okay. Yes. Okay. I don't have anything to eat. You have to go away. Aww. Okay. Yes, he's a cute dog. Um, anyway, um, yes. So if you're downwind of those uh, missile silos, like if the wind was coming out of the north, uh, that stuff would probably blow a um, plume onto Denver which is 50 miles away from the missile silos that would um, produce um, 
potentially lethal doses of radiation to the people who didn't stay in their house. Mm. If you stayed in your house, you probably could shelter. But if you didn't, then, you know, you might receive a lethal dose. So that that is a realistic scenario. And, you know, those plumes um, would be extending downwind all over the West here. And that's the reason that they claim to have put these missile silos here, which I don't really like, which is nobody cares about the little area in the United States here in Colorado, Wyoming, Montana, that they care about the East Coast and the West Coast where all the population is. So let's put our weapons in the middle of the country and take them away from the East Coast and the West Coast. That's a pretty stupid idea. You know, Britain and France have a, especially Britain has a better idea, which is don't put any missiles in Britain. Um, you know, put them on a submarine. Of course, the submarines do dock up there in Scotland. And so that certainly would be a target there. Um, but otherwise, you know, there's no reason to bomb Britain with ground bursts and spread radiation all over the place. Um, but that would happen. You know, there was uh, some analysis done for Russia and uh, in 2000, in the year 2000. And at that time, they had were a lot of missile silos that were, uh, you know, they were quite a distance away from Moscow, perhaps hundreds of miles or maybe even further. And in these simulations, uh, if the wind was blowing toward Moscow, they would produce a lethal dose on Moscow. Um, so that that is a possibility that, you know, you could be in a town which wasn't attacked hundreds of miles or even a thousand miles away from um, uh, ground bursts and get radiation poisoning. And this happened in the past. It, it happened in the um, um, islands where there were large nuclear weapons tests, and one of them turned out to be a lot bigger than people expected, produced a lot more radiation, which blew down on a bunch of people in the Pacific Islands and uh, caused them to get radiation poisoning. There was a sailor on a ship, a fishing ship, that died from the radiation poisoning. And um, most of the children who live in these islands had to have their thyroids removed because of uh, uh, radioactive iodine um, going to the thyroid and um, being absorbed there and uh, being a hazard to their health. Um, so, yeah, that, that kind of downwind radiation does happen and can kill people. Did those people, did those people who were affected by that radiation ever get anything in return? Did did they did they sue? Did they because that's an extreme thing to happen? Well, they had they evacuated them from some of the islands that they lived on, and um, you know they're they're still the islands where they do the tests are not inhabitable, and there are still people that are sick from this, mm. and whether or not. They have been treated well. It's controversial. There's a lot of literature about this incident. And, um, you know, it was unexpected in the sense that the bomb blast was bigger than they thought it would be. But nevertheless, they obviously didn't take the proper um, precautions. You know, there's radiation hotspots in the United States and Nevada um, because of all the nuclear weapons tests that were done there, mm -hmm. which is why they moved to the Pacific Island. Um, you know, France conducted its tests out in the middle of the Pacific also, um, you know, so, and um, yeah, so there's, there are definitely people there that were affected by these nuclear weapons tests. Uh, and it's controversial as to whether their needs have been met. And certainly they aren't able to inhabit some places which they once did inhabit. Um, you know, this is similar to the situation in 
um, Ukraine and in uh, which, so Chernobyl was on the boundary between Ukraine and Russia mm. and now it's in Ukraine. Uh, and then um, there's Fukushima and Japan and in both of those places they've had to evacuate people um, around both of those reactors whose cores melted down and released radiation. And, you know, some people like Chernobyl, uh, some older people moved back uh, and, um, you know, they were willing to take the risk of radiation poisoning. You know, in the evacuated areas, um, I believe the criteria is that they shouldn't get more than twice the natural dose of radiation. So over everybody's lifetime, on the average, you accumulate a, a lethal dose of radiation from natural sources of radiation. And of course, it, there's differences between getting a radiation dose suddenly or over a long period because your body can repair damage if it has time. Um, but nevertheless, uh, there's a radiation hazard just from being uh, alive and you know, there's all kinds of interesting things like there's a geologic formation near here where the strata are tipped up. And so you can walk down this road up a mountainside and walk through time. And about halfway down it, there's some dinosaur bones. And if you take a guider counter, they're radioactive. Um, oh, wow. Which is not because <laughs> dinosaurs had nuclear weapons. Uh, it's because uh, uranium likes to deposit itself in... Um, uh, uh, bones for some reason. And so there's, you know, in, in, that's a, there's actually a house in Wyoming made out of dinosaur bones, which is probably hazardous to be in. I don't think it's a very big house, kind of more like a hut. Uh, but, uh, and uranium actually has a, uh, the a time type that makes bombs as a moderate lifetime. And uh, so if you go back in earth history, um, there was a lot more of the radiation that you use in bombs. And in fact, some people think it was enough that in some places fusion or fission occurred and you might have actually had, I don't know if it was an explosion, but you probably had nuclear fission, which happens to make the energy in a bomb actually occurring in nature because the concentration of this isotope with uranium was higher. That's really interesting. Do you know if they ever managed to they contained Fukushima, but did they manage to clean it up? Because I heard conflicting stories about it, and then I didn't see anything about Fukushima again after the meltdown happened. I think they have a significant problem there because they have a huge amount of um, radioactive water yeah. and, um, contained in tanks, and I believe they're dumping it into the ocean in the near future. That's uh, what I heard, but I didn't want to say anything because I didn't. I didn't want to be ignorant on the subject. But I heard that they were <laughs> they were going to yeah. do something like that, which is uh, is that's worrying. That's got to have a negative effect on the wildlife, surely. Yeah, I mean, it it is certainly hazardous, and you know that those isotopes have lifetimes of tens or thousands of years or more. You know, so you you can't deal with something like that by just outweighting it. You know, you're it's going to be radioactive for as long as a human civilization has been on the planet. Um, you know, so people started building houses and farms ten thousand years ago. It's going to be ten thousand years before Chernobyl is 
or more before Chernobyl would be actually safe in the reactor itself. You know, they built a huge concrete dome over the reactor there yeah. um, to cut it off. Um, so yeah, those that's a long-term problem. And, you know, it's a long-term problem with all the reactors that even the ones that don't melt down because, you know, they eventually the reactor buildings are like everything else who get old and you have to um, discard them. Hmm. Where, where do you discard a radioactive um, a nuclear reactor? Uh, that's not a little thing. It's big. Um, right now there's like, 100,000 tons of highly radioactive material sitting around reactors. Um, and in fact, that's one of the most significant threats of radiation release in a nuclear war is that people started blowing up reactors, you know, either on purpose, you know, like I can imagine Russia deciding to blow up the nuclear reactors in the United States, mm. which are about 100 uh to spread radiation all over the place uh, and, and i could imagine us doing the same thing to russia which is a violation of uh the legalities of war it's illegal to attack nuclear reactors or dams or things like that um but, but that didn't mean they wouldn't do it um but at any rate there's a lot of hazardous radiation just sitting around outside reactors because no country in the world has decided how to dispose of that waste and it's just getting larger and larger as time goes by. And, you know, even if you didn't blow up the reactors, you can you can see they have to be connected to a power line. You know, this is a problem with the um, in Ukraine now because of the they keep attacking uh, this one reactor there, which is the biggest one in Europe, I think. And um, if you cut the external power and the reactor is shut down, you're in danger of it having a core meltdown. This is what happened at Fukushima. You destroyed the, you shut down the reactors, but then they, um, a tidal wave destroyed the generators that would have kept the cooling system functioning. And um, so it overheated. And, you know, that can happen uh, in any of these nuclear reactors if they can't keep their cooling going. So, how safe is nuclear energy then and harnessing it from nuclear reactors? Well, that's a very controversial subject, and I'm certainly not an expert on that. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, you, obviously Chernobyl and Fukushima have caused a lot of concern. I think Germany has shut down all of its reactors, for example, which is a pretty extreme step. Mm. Uh, and, um, you know, it's so expensive to build nuclear reactors these days that they're economically not really viable. Um, otherwise, you know, they'd be a great solution to the global warming problem. Just use them to produce all your energy. Uh, you know, and this is going to be a growing controversy because there are a bunch of people who want to build little tiny reactors. You know, so th then you'll have little reactors all over the place. You know, and, um, how safe are those going to be is a controversial subject. Um, so, yeah, it's obviously I don't believe anyone in the United States has ever been harmed greatly by any reactor incident um and but obviously they have been at fukushima and chernobyl uh, so normal reactor problems are and not seeming to be hazardous i mean coal for example has radioactivity associated with it as well as all kinds of other 
um, nasty things. And I mean, it's thought that air pollution from coal-fired power plants and other things like that are killing millions of people a year um, around the world, uh, particularly in places like India and China and, uh, and anybody who lives near a coal-fired power coal-powered fire plant is uh, in danger just because the stuff gets in your lungs when you breathe it and can cause lung cancer and other things like that. Um, so yeah, it's not just nuclear plants that are dangerous. Coal plants are dangerous too and are currently doing a lot more damage than nuclear plants. Hmm. How bad could have Chernobyl have been had they not contained it and, you know, poured concrete over it to prevent a meltdown? I guess I don't know the answer to that. It was, it was obviously the people that tried to stop it from melting down. There was uh, quite a few people that died from that. Mm. <clears throat> you know, so it would have been extremely hazardous to have that radiation, um, you know, blow out into toward Russia, where it probably would have gone. Oh, I think it, on the particular event, I think it went up into Scandinavia um, uh, from what did get released. Uh, so yeah, yeah, that was a very dangerous situation there, and but I, I don't know how many people died from it, or it could have been worse. Attacked mm. my dog again. <laughs> That's okay. She's we looking, love dogs. Looking for food is what it is. It's a puppy here, so it's my son's dog. <laughs> oh, what type of uh, what type of dog is it? What kind of a dog is it? It's a lab Newfoundland mix. A laboratory, a lab, and what? A lab Newfoundland. Oh, Newfoundland. It's supposed to end up to be like 90 pounds. <clears throat> yeah, so. Labr Labradors, I only learned this recently. When they were breeding um, Labradors, they accidentally bred out a gene that helps control their hunger levels. So they always oh. feel hung hungry. And that's why so many Labradors are quite, they, they can get quite chubby quite easily because they'll keep eating and eating and eating. I only learned that recently and it's it's crazy. It makes sense, but... Yeah, it makes sense with this one because not only does it eat all the time, but it's the fastest eater I've ever seen. And yeah, my, my wife and I don't have any dogs, but we have my son's two dogs and my, and my daughter's dog. So we usually have three dogs running around here and you can't feed the other two dogs anywhere near the puppy because... He'll eat all three dog foods and, you know, instantaneously, basically. Yeah, they're always hungry. They they literally can't help it, which is, um, yeah, selective breeding is a funny old subject. But back to back yeah. to a nuclear strike. What right. would be the aftermath days, weeks, months after? Oh, okay. Well, you know, I mentioned that the uh, radiation largely decays very rapidly within the days or weeks. Um, so that doesn't last very long. You know, then there'd be all the uh, people who were killed and, you know, 300 million people or something like that across the world dead and the cities would be attacked. And, you know, there's not the physicians and nurses to take care of those people. Plus most of the hospitals would be destroyed. You know, so there'd be dead people all over the place. Um, you know, I'm, it, you know, this becomes really gruesome to think about, but, you know, there'd be uh, no way to bury them all and take care of them. And, uh, you know, probably be all kinds of diseases that would break out because of these kinds of issues. 
And, you know, of course, the cities themselves would be <clears throat> largely destroyed. You know, Hiroshima now is a modern city and, excuse me, it's been rebuilt. Um, you know, people would be afraid to be there for a while because of the radiation. But one could probably rebuild the cities in tens of years. <coughs> oh, excuse me. <clears throat> But if you take an attack between Russia and the United States and NATO, <clears throat> you'd lose most of the population on the Northern Hemisphere. Hmm. So the places there probably be um, hundreds of millions of people left in South America and uh, Southern Africa, New Zealand and Australia actually have very few issues. So New Zealand, for example, <clears throat> grows a lot of sheep who eat grass mm -hmm. uh, for food. And they grow more sheep than they need to eat, so they export them. So while everybody else is starving to death, the uh, New Zealanders would stop exporting sheep and, sheep and they would just eat sheep. Kind of a boring <laughs> diet, but at least it'd be a diet. And uh, there's a similar thing going on in Australia, which exports a lot of um, things it grows. And so those countries are the least damaged, New Zealand and Australia. But, you know, Argentina, you know, loses half its population or something like that um, in our models by the second year. But, you know, this problem doesn't go away in two years. It doesn't even reach its worst phases as far as the temperature goes until the third or fourth year. It takes a decade to return to normal temperatures. You know, so there there'd be even further losses of life. And it's not just the cold weather, it's you'd lose your ability to refine oil probably, and you'd lose all your transportation and fertilizer. Uh, so it'd be very difficult to grow crops. Uh, you know, people have estimated that the earth could only support about half a million people, 500 million people in primitive agriculture. Um, you know, so everybody would have to go out and make their own little garden and try to grow their own food and, you know, and cut out the weeds themselves and um, so on and so forth, instead of having tractors do it all. And, you know, so that, that would take decades to um, overcome. Um, if, you know, if there were a billion people left on the planet, um, well, in the first place, they wouldn't be in the Northern hemisphere mostly. So you'd have a totally different group of people, probably that would take over the earth. You know, the most likely people to take over the earth are um, either Africans or South Americans or possibly um, Muslims from places like Indonesia, um, which um, wouldn't be as affected as much as Russia and the United States and Britain and Norway and Scandinavia and things like that. <clears throat> so there'd probably be a new political order on the planet. Um and there'd probably be a lot of warfare that's occurring because people would be fighting over food. And, you know, when, when I mentioned that 2% of the people would be left in Russia, and that calculation was two years into this event, which would go on longer. But it also assumed that all the food was given to those 2% of the people and not to anybody else. So the 98% of the people that weren't getting any food would probably kill the people that were getting food. Uh, you know, so there'd be all kinds of local fights over food and, um, and other resources. 
So you could imagine that there'd be um, a lot of problems. And there are things we don't know about this. For example, um, it's not just that it gets cold, but the ozone layer is also destroyed. Mm. And, um, you know, obviously people could just stay inside or they could put on a lot of suntan lotion. But in the height of the ozone loss, um, you know, people from people who were Caucasians would probably couldn't go outside for more than tens of minutes or something like that before they get a terrible sunburn. Uh, and we have no idea what the biota of the earth would do in a situation like this. Um, you know, we, a lot of plants don't like ultraviolet light. You know, you could have uh, mass losses of forests and crops and things because of that. And, and nobody's been able to evaluate um, that hazard. There could also be um, extinctions in the oceans because of temperature changes, that ocean surface temperatures change. And we already know from things like El Nino's, like if you live in California, and um, you know, I had an embarrassing episode of this myself a few years ago. I was going to a meeting in San Francisco in the winter where I invited my former graduate students who were having dinner there. I said, oh, well, let's all go down and look at the seals and uh, San Francisco Bay. They all like to come up and sleep on the docks. And, you know, so we all went down there and they're usually really noisy, making all kinds of barking sounds. And there wasn't a single seal there. And that was because it was an El Nino. And uh, so there was all this warm water had moved up the coast of California. So the seals had all gone north to Oregon to catch their normal food. And, uh, you know, so there'd be all kinds of rearrangements in the oceans um, in a nuclear war because the ocean surfaces would get quite a bit cooler. And a lot of creatures wouldn't like that. And they they might be able to escape by going to the tropics or something, but it might be a long swim for plankton. How would it impact climate change if everything's colder, below zero, would would it have an impact? Uh, well, you, you couldn't, for example, pump greenhouse gases in the atmosphere fast enough to overcome the cooling. So you couldn't use that as a way of stopping it from getting cold. Uh, you know, it, when the um, smoke went away, which would take about 10 years, or to be removed from the atmosphere, well, you'd probably return to a normal climate. <clears throat> there are some things that seem to linger here. There's um, an event called the Little Ice Age, and uh, pretty prominent in Europe in the, for several centuries, around 1400 to 1600, maybe it ended around the beginning of the 1900s, um, in which it was colder than it had been before or after. And, you know, all kinds of glaciers came down from the Swiss mountains to much bigger than they are now. And um, there was a lot of sea ice around Iceland, for example, which made fishing different, difficult. I mean, there's surprising things about fishing in Iceland. You know, and I think this was in just before Columbus came to the New World. Um, there were 100 German ships sunk off of Iceland in one storm. Um, you know, so there's a huge amount of fishing historically going on off the coast of Iceland. Um, and uh, but you probably wouldn't be able to fish in the little ice age. And uh, we're not sure why there was a little ice age, but one theory is that there was a bunch of volcanic eruptions 
and put stuff in the stratosphere and cool the planet off. And once the ice had formed there in um, around Iceland and some other places in the North Atlantic, that it was stable and it just stayed there for a long time. Uh, and that we find in our models that that's happening in these nuclear war simulations, which are more extreme than what happened in a little ice age as far as particles go by quite a bit. And, um, you know, so the ice does expand around Iceland. And um, so the fishing would be um, a problem problem there. You know, there's other historical things that are somewhat like this. There's a so-called year without a summer, which was in 1816. And um, there was a big eruption in Indonesia called it by Mount Tambora, which is the biggest eruption we know about um, for quite a long time. And, um, you know, that caused a significant cooling um, in New England and the United States. It uh, became known as the um, 1800 and froze to death. Or, and um, so basically the people that lived in New England, um, uh, th there was a late snowstorm in June. And then there were a couple of other frosts in the middle of the summer. And so people planted their crop in May and got killed in the frost, the snowstorm in June, and then they replanted it to get killed on the next frost. And so they lost all their crops um, because of the bad weather. And it actually, the population fell from New England in the next several years. People moved elsewhere. Uh, and in Europe, it caused all kinds. It caused a potato famine. Uh, you know, it wasn't long after the Napoleonic Wars. There's a lot of other troubles there, but it caused a lot. There's a lot of bad weather in Germany. So it was very wet and cold, and it caused um, lingering problems because uh, Lord Byron and Percival Shelley were uh, having a vacation in Switzerland, and it was rainy and miserable. And so they got into a um, mystery writing contest, and Mary Shelley out of that um, wrote Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. um, so we're still plagued by that volcanic eruption. Um, and, you know, that's the kind of a thing that a even a small nuclear war could start something like that, um, you know, because that was a very small cooling compared to what would happen. You know, these nuclear winter temperature falls are like the middle of the last ice age. You know, they have the similar temperatures to what globally what there was in the last ice age. That's uh, pretty extreme. Are there any estimates as to how long it would take the Earth to recover from nuclear winter? If it could. If it what could, would that, what would that even look like? You know, because if the UV rays are um, killing off most of the plants, only the strongest plants will survive from that. What what would it look like? Well, if we, uh, I mean, we don't know. So there was a similar situation that happened to the dinosaurs mm -hmm. sixty six million years ago, and so in that case, what happened was a uh, an asteroid hit the Yucatan Peninsula of Mexico which at that time was underneath an ocean. And uh, it blew, the impact blew rocks into the sky and they fell back down over the earth. And um, when they fell back down, they, they were like shooting stars. They heated up, you know, you see a shooting star, there's a little flash of light behind it because the friction from the air heats it up and vaporizes it. And, but in this case, there'd be 10,000 shooting stars per centimeter squared, there there are 10,000 shooting stars per centimeter squared on the ground now left from 66 million years ago. 
So this wasn't like a shooting star once an, every minute or two, like you see. This would be the entire sky with shooting stars. You know, so the entire sky flashed up. You know, it looked so the dinosaurs didn't get killed by getting hit in the head by anything. It, the whole sky was heated to about a thousand degrees centigrade. Wow. And so this was like glowing red hot sky to be like, you know, see people standing near molten lava from a volcano, or it'd be like, I think European ovens have a broil setting. In the United States, they have a broiler in addition to just a baker. You know, and you, you look inside your oven, there's this hot bar of metal that gets glowing red hot. And the energy density from that is similar to the, from this sky. And so probably the dinosaurs did broiled alive from this glowing sky. And it burned, as far as we can tell, everything on the surface of the planet. Um, because the smoke that's left from this event is still there. You know, for example, in southern Colorado, there's a little layer of um, asteroid and smoke left from uh, this event 66 million years ago. Touch it. Um, you know, and so there's same thing, Gubbio, Italy. That's how this was discovered. Some uh, people from Berkeley uh, discovered this layer in Italy that was a remnant of this asteroid collision. Anyway, so everything on the planet burned and um, the smoke, the sky was full of smoke and uh, temperatures dropped just about the same as they would drop after a nuclear winter. Ozone layer was destroyed and 90% of these species on the planet went extinct. Um, but so this is not a total parallel to nuclear war because the asteroid had 100,000 times as much energy as all the nuclear arsenals that currently exist. You know, this wow. is a really energetic thing. It was like having a nuclear explosion of a one megaton weapon every five miles. You know, so there's a lot of energy there. And the amount of smoke produced, which we know because it's still there, you know, it's like 100 times as much as a nuclear war would produce. Um, but the climate response to that is pretty similar. The loss of sunlight from a nuclear winter is about 70 or 80% of normal sunlight. Mm -hmm. uh, the loss after the uh, asteroid impact was, well, it was a millionth of normal, went down by a factor of a million. And um, photosynthesis requires at least 1% of normal sunlight. And so there was probably a mass extinction in the oceans because the sunlight levels we're below 1% for a couple of years in numerical models. Of course, we haven't only measured the sunlight then, uh, but numerical models suggest that that's what happens. You take the smoke on the ground, you put it back in the air, sunlight is absorbed by the smoke, um, which is black, and um, the light gets to the ground, and probably the there was a mass extinction in the oceans, and the phytoplankton just couldn't reproduce anymore. Um, you know, and, you know, and things recovered... From this fairly rapidly, um, you know, within a million years, there were all kinds of mammals that had taken over from the dinosaurs. And mm. there's a nice section here near in Colorado where you can see how the animals, the mammals evolved quickly over a million years in response to this. You know, so we don't expect extinctions of people anyway, following a nuclear war. Um, it's not obvious that there are no extinctions, you know, that some of these effects are pretty dramatic and we don't know what the ultraviolet light would do. Um, but if there are no extinctions, um, then people would probably rebuild within decades and um, 
you know, the human, when I was, when I was born, the population of the earth was, I think about a quarter of what it is now. Uh, you know, so the human population, you know, went from 7 billion to 8 billion here just in the last few years. Uh, and, you know, so people are pretty fast at um, reproduction. Um, and so the population of the earth would probably return to what it is now in a few, I'm not quite sure how many decades or period of time it would take, but, you know, it wouldn't be 100 years or less um, to repopulate the planet. Um and, you know, once you get enough people, you could probably recreate the things that had existed before. Would people recreate nuclear weapons again? You know, so when I was young, I was, uh, was a graduate student working for Carl Sagan. And Carl worked on this same problem with us. And as I mentioned, we got into it. I mean, the people who were doing calculations got into it. And because of the asteroid collision, and we could see a phenomena happening from burning everything. And Carl got into it because astronomers were worried about this issue of why aren't they detecting civilizations spread throughout the galaxy? Um, you know, there's a whole paradox about it where, you know, if you calculate how many civilizations you expect to be out there, um, you can get a big number. Fortunately, there's a lot of uncertainties in that calculation. Uh, but nevertheless, there's a lot of stars out there, and we now know there's a lot of planets out there, which Carl didn't know. Um, but he guessed that there would be planets that are habitable around every star in the average, and we think there are planets around almost every star that are habitable. And um, as far as we know, it's not that hard for primitive life to arise. Um, we don't know how hard it is for intelligent life to arise, you know, because it intelligent life, I mean, depending on what you mean by intelligent, <laughs> only came up in the last, you know, million years, um, you know, multicellular creatures that, you know, are, were around for about 500 million years, but the earth is four and a half billion years old, um, you know, so it wasn't until maybe 3.8 billion years or so ago that you had plankton and simple bacteria and it's very simple single celled organisms around and um, so the earth went from almost 4 billion years ago to 500 million years ago you know used up 90% of its age or something like that with nothing very interesting in the planet beyond bacteria mm. so there's probably a lot of planets out there with simple life on them um, but, you know, if you assume that simple life, if life benefits from being smart, which isn't clear that it does, and in fact, in the mammal recovery, it appears that mammals spent more time on body size than in increasing brain size in the million years or so that it took in their first million years of evolution after they took over from the dinosaurs. But but maybe its advantage has an advantage to be smart. Um, and uh, in that case, um, you know, there's probably inhabited planets within like 10 light years or so of where we live. Mm. Um, so you could probably actually communicate with them if they were smart, but they're probably not. Uh, but nevertheless, there should be millions of intelligent civilizations in our galaxy out there. Uh, and we haven't found them. Where are they? Um, and so some people, like Carl, worried, well, they are like us, 
They build nuclear weapons after they've been around for about 50 years and they annihilate themselves. Uh, and um, so that was his concern is that human beings would either become extinct or they would um, push themselves back into the dark ages and never recover. Mm. Um, because you never recover back to a level where they could build spaceship and communicate over great distances and things like that. Um, so some astronomers are worried that that tells us that it would be really bad to have a nuclear war. Other astronomers think, well, it's just not that likely to get civilization and intelligence to develop when you're starting off with bacteria. Or maybe smart civilizations don't want to be found because uh, they're afraid somebody will come and invade them. Um, you know, I guess it seems to me if you're smart enough to build a spacecraft and go to another planet, you'd be smart enough not to kill everybody you found. Um, but I'm not sure that current civilization actually supports that <laughs> belief. We can certainly build a spacecraft, but it seems like we want to build nuclear weapons instead. Um, so I think it's an interesting question. Can can we actually, you know, everybody's very hopeful back in about 1992 when the Soviet Union disintegrated and it seemed like peace had broken out in the world, you know, and maybe we're going to start solving our problems you know, by talking to each other instead of invading each other and threatening each other with nuclear weapons. Um, but obviously, we've now gone backwards on that path, and uh, you know, we're no longer able to have new treaties developed between the U.S. and Russia for nuclear weapons. And we've gotten rid of the treaties we did have, and we've gone to this phase of threatening each other with nuclear annihilation. You know, that's not a promising sign. Uh, you know, and so it's hard to know whether we should be optimistic about the future, which I think we should be, uh, and see this as just a temporary aberration. Um, I, I see this more as an awakening. Mm. You know, I've been working on this problem for 30 years. And up until 1990, people were worried about it. You know, and then after the Soviet Union fell apart and peace broke out, everybody said, oh, we're not worried about nuclear weapons. And so young people like you, and I said, well, I don't care. <laughs> nuclear weapons, are, what are they? Who cares? Um, and uh, But, you know, I think people have rediscovered this problem. And hopefully once the Ukrainian war is over, then the United States and Russia and other countries will um, try to resolve their differences with negotiations again instead of invading each other. Maybe other civilizations out there don't want to make contact with us because we're still messing around with nuclear weapons and threatening each other and feeding the eternal war machine. You know, maybe they see what's going on down here and they're like, a bit too immature. Right. Well, that's possible too, that they, they think we're too young to mess around with. And, you know, it's an interesting problem, you know, when you have dictators, you know, obviously there's something about human beings that, wants to allow dictators to develop and push everybody else around. And, you know, the, the dictators all want more and more power. And so they all want to invade their neighbors. And it was happening all over the world. You know, we, for a long time, it appeared democracies were going to be um, the norm around the world. And people would make decisions for themselves about what they wanted to do. And But now we're backtrading on that. And we've got, um, you know, dictators spreading around in lots of places, um, which is not a good sign. I think I read 
a study recently i'm very not i'm very sure i'm not making this up that said that most people are actually fine with fascism so long as the fascist ideals align with their own i'm very sure i read that recently which i can see that that's the case <laughs> for quite a few societies yeah well you know that's a uh, i think true i think people can get brainwashed into um leaving things there's a, I don't know, my wife is in a book club and her book club just read a, a new novel called The German Wife, uh, which is about a um, husband who was a rocket scientist in Germany and wanted to build rockets and go to the moon. And then he got trapped into the building V2 rockets to bomb London in the Second World War. And uh, it's, it's interesting just to see the way that they were trapped, you know, they were you know, opposed to almost everything involved in Nazism and, you know, but they were overwhelmed by everybody else who went along with it. And, uh, and you know, you can see the same thing happening in, in lots of, you know, like in the United States at the moment, you know, we got people in various states banning everything and they can think of banning books and banning what you can, you know, like one state, I just think it passed a, a rule that you couldn't use pronouns for people like there's this whole thing of, or are you a he or a she or a they or which is confusing to somebody of my age so some politicians said oh let's just ban the use of those words uh and uh you know they banned you know people's ability to um you know be diverse basically if they mm -hmm. they don't like the diversity or they object to their excuse me political or religious or something believes and they just ban that and uh, that's a very dangerous trend and it's happening all over the world mm. yes it certainly feels like the world has regressed in the past decade or maybe we're just more aware of it because of social media i'm not sure um did you ever see a i believe it was a film like a film for television in the uk called threads no, I don't think so. Uh, it was about um, if nuclear Armageddon happened and the reality of it happening. So it's based in Sheffield, which is up in the north of England. Mm -hmm. um, everywhere gets bombed. Local councils hide in these war bunkers, but they die of suffocation. No one, No one's equipped to deal with nuclear war and the after effects of it. And... 15 or so years after the initial bombings happened, there's this teenager who gets pregnant and gives birth to a stillborn child. So I guess my question is, <clears throat> say we have nuclear war, what would the ramifications of the after effects be on the human body? Would we see an increase in, well, stillborn children? Obviously, cancer rates, I'm assuming. <clears throat> I say obviously, but I'm assuming what would the effects be on the human body? Um, well, I don't think anybody knows the answer to that. There's uh, radiation effects on humans are very controversial. And, mm. you know, it's very hard to tell. You know, this is one of these insidious things where it, it happens slowly, you know, radiation poisoning. Uh, you know, if you give an acute dose, you can die very quickly. But, you know, most people wouldn't get an acute dose. They would get, you know, some slow dose. And you're already being given a slow dose of radiation all the time. 
and um, by natural from natural radiation. And there are some professions in which people are exposed to higher radiation doses, like airplane pilots and steward people who fly in airplanes a lot get higher doses or various kinds of miners that are exposed to high doses of radiation. Um, so there are a number of professions where people are exposed to higher than natural normal doses. Uh, you know, but this thing happens so slowly uh, that it's hard to tell if, you know, people get cancer normally. And um, so it's hard to tell if you get cancer, whether it's caused by radiation or um, some other cause. <clears throat> so I don't think we know the answer to that question, uh, whether the body would be affected by it. Of course, you know, many people would be injured by being nearer a nuclear weapon explosion. And mm -hmm. so, that in, you know, there are already people in Japan who are horribly disfigured uh, because of being in Hiroshima or Nagasaki, uh, or for that matter, there were more, even more people killed in Tokyo from firebombing Tokyo um, in the war. There were something like 63 Japanese cities that were firebombed, um, like Dresden and Hamburg were firebombed. And, um, you know, there were huge numbers of people burned in those things and horribly disfigured. And, you know, particularly, I think there was prejudice against the people in Nagasaki and Hiroshima because of the nuclear radiation. And, you know, people were afraid of, you know, that it being contagious or something, which, mm. of course, is not contagious. Um, but sure, so there'd be a lot of, in the near term, there'd be all kinds of people that had suffered terribly from the explosions. Um, in the longer term, I don't, I don't think there would be long-lasting effects, but it, um, uh, and I don't know why there would be. Okay, what do you think of the statement? Because I've seen people discuss this topic that nukes act as a deterrent, and the threat of war keeps the peace due to mutually assured destruction. Personally, I don't agree with this statement. Um, what, what do you think of when people say that? The, the threat of war keeps the peace. I think the threat of war keeps people anxious, but... Right. Well, this is another controversial and complicated subject. I mean, you can take the current event uh, in the, the war in Ukraine, and, uh, you know, the threat of a nuclear conflict isn't preventing countries from helping Ukraine. Um, on the other hand, we're not invading <laughs> or sending troops into Ukraine to stop Russia either, which probably is because we don't want to provoke a nuclear war. So we, there is some level of deterrence there. Um, but there, there's all kinds of situations that have happened, like um, Argentina attacked Britain in the Falkland Islands. Argentina doesn't have nuclear weapons. Britain does. It didn't stop them from starting a war with Britain. Um, the United States and lost a war in Vietnam, you know, so the Vietnamese weren't stopped by the threat of nuclear weapons. You know, Russia and the United States both lost a war in Afghanistan. So the uh, Afghans didn't stop fighting us because we had nuclear weapons and they didn't. So it had no value at all in any of those kinds of situations. Uh, and um, But, you know, it, it does provide some deterrence level um, against uh, NATO, for example, protecting Ukraine. And so this is a very complicated issue. What would happen if Russia in, invaded Estonia? Um, you know, Estonia is not unlike Ukraine. There's a lot of Russians that live in Estonia or the other Balkan countries. But, you know, those are all NATO countries. 
you know, the same thing is true of Finland and Sweden, which um, at, at least one of which is now a NATO country, I guess. Um, you know, so if any of those countries had been invaded, I mean, you know, Russia's invaded all those countries historically for hundreds of years. Uh, you know, there's, there's constant wars going on between, you know, Finland and uh, Sweden and Russia. Uh, you know, so it's, it's not like it's never happened in the past. Uh, and um, but, you know, if if the uh, if Russia invaded those countries then NATO would have to respond. Uh, you know, so far the only, you know, so there's a, I've forgotten what the name of this article is, but one of the articles in the NATO formulations is that you can call up Article Six and um, ask for defense from other countries. And the only time this has happened is the United States called that article up when the um, uh, towers were blown down in New York City by um, Muslims, and um, people did respond to that you know other countries and help invade Afghanistan and try to control the um, uh, terrorists in those countries. So that's a great danger there um, of, of having a mutually assured destruction because you know there are situations in which you might have to go push against Russia further than we are in Ukraine. And, you know, there's a great danger there of if you didn't have all these weapons around or if you didn't have as many, if you only had a few of them, um, you know, then if there were an accident and, you know, somebody thought that a war had started and felt they had to immediately respond, um, you know, at least they wouldn't cause a nuclear winter, uh, you know, or they... Um, you know, if you had none at all, <laughs> then you wouldn't have the problems. This whole city is being blown up by single weapons. You know, so I, I think that maybe a bigger piece of evidence about this is that there have been editorials written in the New York Times by a group of people like Henry Kissinger and um, William Perry and um, George Schultz, who were all previous um uh, Secretaries of State, our um, Department of Defense um, leaders, uh, all saying mutual assured destruction doesn't work and, and we should get rid of it. Uh, you know, I mean, terrorists, for example, don't care about mutual assured destruction. If they could get a hold of a nuclear weapon, they'd be probably happy to explode it. Mm. And, um, you know, so that, and there are there's not only a lot of philosophical reason, reasons to think it's a bad idea, but, you know, there's also people who, I've thought a lot about this, like the people I just mentioned, uh, and, and who were in important positions, at least in the American government, who think MAD is gone, um, is no longer a good idea. I've almost forgot to ask this question. Are North Korea a valid nuclear threat? Absolutely, North Korea is a nuclear threat. Uh, you know, it's tested weapons that are thermonuclear probably they had yields of 200 kilotons something like that which is you know 10 times more powerful than the Hiroshima bomb um and uh we people who think about how to figure out how many weapons countries have think there's 40 or 50 nuclear weapons in North Korea maybe not totally assembled but they they at least have the potential to have that many they're obviously building uh, long-range missiles, 
Uh, they're trying to reach the United States with them. Uh, and they uh, are building submarines that can launch um, nuclear weapons. Um, they could obviously just put a nuclear weapon on a submarine and drive it over to an American harbor and blow it up. Um, you know, so there's a couple of interesting questions about this. And, you know, one of them is, why are the Koreans doing this? Mm-hmm. You know, is, is it just because we didn't ever sign a treaty at the end of the war uh, with, uh, between the North and South Korea? You know, is we have a kind of an armistice there. Uh, if they want a treaty, why don't we just go sign a treaty? Uh, <clears throat> do they really feel threatened? Why would they? I don't know why they would feel threatened by the United States. We, we basically have no interest in them. And, um, you know, we, we are interested in South Korea because they make all of our appliances. <laughs> you know, that they make a lot of good music. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so you have this incredibly prosperous democracy with the border of a starving dictatorship. <laughs> so, excuse me. So that my view is that South Korea or North Korea is a dictatorship. Mm-hmm. And the dictators there, instead of it investing in their population, uh, have invested in a military in order to protect their dictatorship, and you know, which is obviously a hereditary family. It's not unlike the King of England, uh, you know, kind of a situation there. You know, you have these kings and queens, and they want all their children to have power and their relatives to have power, and they're going to use the military to defend that and let their population starve if they need to. Uh, so my concern in the future is not so much North Korea, because I, I think eventually some one of the children of the North Koreans is going to decide they're on the wrong path. Uh, you know, it's it's pretty obvious if all you do is invest in your military, you're going to go bankrupt. Uh, you really should invest in your people and your economy and things like that. Um, so I think eventually there'll be somebody in North Korea that has enough sense to understand this. Um, you know, and there's nothing to be gained by them really attacking anybody, and nobody's interested in attacking them. Uh, so I think we'll just end up in the status quo that we're in. But of course, incredibly dangerous because South Korea's like Seoul is not very far from the border, and you know, North Korea has incredible numbers of conventional artillery and rockets and other things that they could use in an invasion. But I think the bigger concern is Russia. So North Korea is a failed state. You know, what is it doing? It's investing in its military instead of its economy and its people. You know, what is Russia doing? You know, Russia's economy is largely based on fossil fuels. Fossil fuels are not a viable economic measure in the near term because of um, global climate change. You know, Russia is in a failing economy state. Um, you know, Barack Obama is famous for having said, well, Russia is a small country uh, and it doesn't make anything anybody wants to buy, um, which is pretty much true. Um, NATO, for example, has almost a billion people in it. You know, and Russia and its allies, there's only 200 million people there. You know, so Russia is a fifth of the population of the NATO countries. And, you know, and Russia is not investing in its population or investing in its economy or trying to build a, a competitive economy with China and India and other countries that are rapidly evolving. Uh, you know, this is not good. I mean, you know, if they continue on this path, 
of just building military and building more and more weapons of destruction and things like that, they're going to become a failed state. They're headed toward being a failed state like North Korea. You know, and that's incredibly dangerous. Uh, you know, the Europe and the United States have cut themselves off from Russia even more because of the Ukraine situation. And so Russia is more isolated. Uh, you know, China is pretending to be friends with Russia, which historically, I think China is pretty skeptical of Russia. Um, uh, and there are issues in there between those two countries. So I think it's a very dangerous situation as the current century evolves is what will Russia do? Will Russia wake up and, you know, decide, well, just building a military is not in our interest and we should, I mean, why isn't Russia like everybody else in Europe? <laughs> you know, why, why can't Russia just be like France or Britain or somebody else and, you know, make wine or cheese or automobiles or something? You know, why do they want to have weapons? Uh, you know, I, I don't understand why this is, you know, I suppose there's a long history there of, warfare going on in the central plains of Europe where you, know, you invade Poland every few decades because you can quickly move across the plains. And, you know, we're in a situation right now just like the start of the Second World War. I mean, people don't remember this about the Second World War. I mean, at the beginning of the war, Russia was an ally of Hitler's. You know, it wasn't just Hitler that invaded Poland. It was Hitler and Russia. You know, so Russia moved into Central Europe from one side and Germany moved in from the other. And, you know, we're just seeing uh, Russians repeat, you know, that right now by trying to take over Ukraine and Georgia and Moldova and who knows what else they have in mind. You know, so that's a very dangerous thing. But on the other hand, another aspect of that is, you know, Americans think, oh, we suffered greatly in the Second World War. There were about 300,000 Americans, almost all military, who were killed in the Second World War. But there were probably 30 million Russians killed in the Second World War. You know, they, they suffered more than any other country, you know, far more than Germany, for example, in terms of, which I think also lost a few million people. Mm. You know, so Russia should have this memory of war, and which I think they're celebrating actually in a few days. Um, and they, they shouldn't want to repeat that. Um, so why why they don't remember their losses in the Second World War as an example of what not to do is puzzling. So to end on, how do you feel about the future? Do you feel cautiously optimistic or pessimistic? What what are your thoughts? Uh, well, looking back on my life, um, you know, when I was young, uh, India and China couldn't even feed their populations. Uh, you know, there's no way you could go very far. You know, if you wanted to go to China, it was like a major undertaking. You know, people would write books about you because you went to China in my lifetime. Uh, you know, the world is much richer and better now than it was, you know, just you know, 70 years ago. And uh, I think it will be even better in the coming future. So I think the life of the average person is better on the planet than it's ever been in the past. Uh, and, um, you know, there's always been all these problems that seem to be there in the current time. You know, my father, for example, was um, 
lived in Oklahoma in the Depression. You know, his family was driven out of Oklahoma by in the Dust Bowl. They, they were itinerant farmers. You know, they went and picked crops in California to survive and in Arizona to survive. And, uh, you know, they lived in dirt poor farm, basically. You know, so th there's a lot of people whose grandparents grew up on farms in the United States. And, you know, now they're grandchildren or professors or people that aren't starving by any means and are not likely to ever experience those kind of things. Um, you know, so I, I think the world's getting better. I'm optimistic it will continue to improve and, you know, but it's up to young people to solve this problem. You know, who's, who's going to solve this problem? It's not people my age. It's not Donald Trump and Joe Biden for sure. You know, they're, it's going to be young people who, you know, go out and create new industries and build electric cars and figure out how to make renewable energy, solve the uh, global warming problem and figure out how to stop um, people from uh, fighting wars against each other all the time. Uh, you know, and you can travel anywhere you want in the world now. And almost you can go to Antarctica and ski across the continent. I mean, who can imagine that? Uh, you know, not that long ago. Uh, so I'm, I'm quite optimistic about the future. Uh, and I think the world would continue to be better almost everywhere. But there's global warming going on. There's going to be, you think the migration problems are bad now. That if we don't solve this problem by the end of the century, there's going to be mass migrations out of the Middle East. And, mm. you know, there are a number of countries, you know, like Kuwait is an example, where um, it's very hot. It's also very humid. And the, the human body can't control its it can't control its body temperature, and that kind of condition people just won't be able to live there by the end of this century. And there's going to be several other places where uh, it's you know just very difficult to live because it's too hot. Uh, and you know, of course, we may have flooding starting up. Probably not in the really near future. But I just bought a house in Florida that's on the water, which actually did get destroyed in a hurricane <laughs> but wow. uh, it was a little unfortunate but it, it wasn't global warming raising the sea level by an inch you know it was uh, but it might have been global warming making hurricanes more powerful <clears throat> but nevertheless you know 100 years from now we're going to have significant flooding going on mm. in coastal areas and it's going to threaten cities all over the place and um, you know we're going to have to pick up london and move it away from the river uh, we're going to have to move Louisiana and New Orleans is already underwater. We're going to have to pick the whole city up and move it, build huge dikes around everything. You know, so it's up to people like you to solve this problem. And um, it's a solvable problem. Uh, you know, these problems are solvable. And, um, you know, so I think that uh, people shouldn't be pessimistic about solving them. Um, they're all solvable problems. Got it. Global warming. I'll fix it. No one worry. Where can Good. people where can people keep up with you? Uh, do you have a website or a Twitter account? Uh, no, I don't uh, do either one of those things. I mean, I have a website where you can look at my papers if you want to. Um, I have a TED Talk that you can watch if you want. Mm -hmm. uh, I think about nine people, nine million people have watched it or something like that now. It was very interesting in that and that. Up until the invasion of Ukraine, four million people had watched it, and there were comments on there that were mostly derogatory, like, you've been studying nuclear war for 35 years, 
how can you study them? There's never been one. Or why are you wasting your time on this problem? And um, the title of this thing is something like, I've been studying nuclear war for 35 years and you should be worried. Much I didn't give it that title, but that is the title that Ted gave it. Um, anyway, now it has suddenly doubled the number of people who've seen it. Um, and a lot of the comments now are things like, I've studied nuclear wars for an hour and I am worried about it. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, so the TED Talk is kind of, people seem to be interested in it. Mm. Well, thank you very much for coming on. It's been a very informative conversation. Thanks, and... I enjoyed talking you. Good. I'm glad to hear it. And for everyone else, make sure that you like, comment, subscribe, follow us on Spotify and iTunes. Give me five star on iTunes, not iTunes. Give me five star on Spotify. Thank you very much. And yeah, that's all from me today. Thank you again, Brian. And I'll see you guys next time. Bye. Yeah.